I've actually got a picture that was um, taken by um, a random photographer of a white man, like an old white man in the middle of London at a pro-Brexit protest, shouting at me, calling me a race traitor. And this is really? not even... <laughs> yeah, it, is... <laughs> it is actually crazy. Welcome to the Brown Don't Frown podcast with your host, Tanya Hardcastle. We're here to engage in a thoroughly inclusive conversation with women from different backgrounds, shaped by our cultural, racial and social experiences, we share our stories. Good evening, fellow podcast listeners. So on today's show, we talk about freedom of speech, identity politics and women of colour. I'm delighted to be joined by Inaya Falarin Iman. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So we became acquainted following a, a TV appearance quite recently, and I was very intrigued by her discussions there and invited her along to today's show. And I was very thrilled when she said that she could make it virtually, which is how we're recording today. To start off with, Inaya, would you like to tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm a 23-year-old Scorpio. Um, I was born in London, but I've actually lived in different parts of Britain, Brighton, Kent, Hertfordshire, Leeds, but also um, moved a little bit outside of the country as well. So I've lived in Morocco and Spain. Um, I'm the child of Nigerian immigrants to the UK, but both of my parents were actually educated in Britain from a young age. So I've kind of had um, parents that were quite British culturally, even though they still had that um, Nigerian thinking about them. Um, But I was also raised in a single parent household um, and my mum was uh, very unique. She was deeply politically engaged. She was also non-religious and she engaged uh, my sister and I in politics and kind of what was going on in the world from a very, very young age. So I think that that from very early on um, gave me quite a strong foundation in terms of being really interested in, in society and politics at large. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Quite an interesting dynamic, um, having um, a Nigerian background, but also having parents that sort of imbibed in the British culture as well. So, yeah, that yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've got quite a binary there, but also quite a nice mix mixture in terms of culture and outlook on life. Absolutely. No, it was. It's really um, something that I guess I'm really grateful for because I think that having a really kind of eclectic and multifaceted way of thinking from early on, I think definitely ended up shaping um, how I ended up being aligned politically as I got older, definitely. Yeah, I'm quite similar to you actually, I moved around quite a bit. Um, I was born in London, but then I moved around quite a bit within London growing up and then I moved, I actually ended up moving to Florida for a couple of years. Um, Wow. Yeah, with my family and then moved back to the UK, but we essentially we came back in peak recession time so we couldn't afford to move back to London and we ended up coming back to the northeast of England in Teesside um so yeah I've had a very interesting upbringing I've seen basically everything (laughs) that is very (laughs) unique (laughs) so yeah quite similar to you in that sense um and definitely shaped shaped my worldview on a lot of things um my parents are both quite conservative um they they both conservative as well it was interesting growing up with that aspect um, because I, growing up, have been quite liberal. But as I get older, I feel like that's my sort of allegiance shifts inch by inch. So we'll see yeah. where I end up when I'm 30. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, find, I think that's really interesting because when we look at um, statistically, when they do kind of polling on how um, different 
ethnic groups and communities in Britain vote. A lot of the time, people from Asian and African heritage overwhelmingly vote for Labour. But actually, if you look at a lot of the values um, that is instituted within a lot of those communities, um, they're actually a lot of them quite traditional conservative values in terms yeah. of going, going to do kind of traditional uh, jobs like law and medicine and things like that, working yeah. really hard, being really self-disciplined. Um, many of those things more traditionally aligned with conservatism. So I think that's quite interesting how yeah. um, that hasn't really shifted much in terms of voting um, as the decades have gone by. Yeah, definitely. You're right. In terms of socially, I think, yeah, migrant community is a lot more socially conservative. Um, mm. Economically, I'm not actually sure because I feel like a lot of the time when you're a migrant, your financial interest sort of lies in more socialist economic policies but yeah I think as people get older or spend more time in the UK then they sort of change their mindset quite a bit yeah Um, I agree yeah but really what intrigued me about you was um, I recently came across an article that you wrote and it might be quite an old article now but um, it was titled um, what does being black mean to you and I really like the emphasis that you placed on being first and foremost a person um, a human being before being labelled um, by virtue of your race uh, and I thought that that really sort of tied in with our current obsession with identity politics in the UK um, and what that means is that we are constantly being put into boxes to fit someone else's narrative about what they think of us um, mm. and I just wanted to ask you how do we as a society delve away from that and do you think we should focus more on individuality? Yeah, so it, it is definitely um, an old article. It's one that I think I, it was the <laughs> it was probably the first um, article that I actually ever published um, publicly. It was for my student newspaper. But interestingly enough, I, I still keep it up on my website because I still think um, I really resonate with the things that I said, and I don't think that I've changed on that. And I think that that's been one of the most um, unfortunate developments I think in. Um, particularly left-wing, but generally speaking, social activism over the last decade. I think that if we look at um, what many of the older generation racial activists were arguing, um, even as far back as Martin Luther King, as cliche as it sounds, Mm. um, one of the most um, important phrases that Martin Luther King said that people often mention to this day is that um, we want to be judged by the content of our character, not the colour of our skin. Um, And I'm also... uh, well, I know quite well um, a British uh, political activist that was very instrumental in many of the race relations acts and, and, and laws related to equality in the UK, and that's Trevor Phillips. And um, he is um, much, much older, and he is really surprised about the way in which racial politics and identity politics have developed over the last 15 years, when previous um, generations were striving to get recognition as an individual. That's what we were challenging in relation to police brutality and and heavy handedness. We didn't want to be seen as um, just um, an identity category and have all of these judgments and stereotypes associated with it. We wanted to be seen as an individual. And now a lot of the younger generations. Yeah, it definitely has um, flipped around quite a bit, hasn't it? With identity. We're now wanting to be seen within our groups and how we identify as opposed to individuality. So yeah, definitely all right about that. Yeah, and I think it's really, um, I think it's it's not only unhelpful, but I actually think it's deeply counterproductive because um, as far as I'm concerned, as much as I do think different ethnic groups share characteristics and interests, ultimately, like, 
we are so eclectic and, and multifaceted and, and dynamic just as any group of people. And it's really sad what we've seen with the kind of identity politics development in my view is that oftentimes when we see uh, black people, for example, that do not necessarily conform to a lot of the stereotypes associated with black people, they're often then, then labeled as an Uncle Tom or, or, yeah. or something like that. And so the people that were originally fighting for them to be seen as individuals are now the ones that are often at the forefront of denying their individual expression. And so to answer your question specifically about um, how do we kind of go past this stage, I think it, it really is as simple to going back to those foundational principles, going back to this idea that um, regardless of your background, regardless of your family regardless of your immutable characteristics we all as human beings are equal at our essence and we all should have an equal opportunity to be able to shape our lives in the way that we so choose and our race our gender any of those things should not be the reason why we're held back yeah i i completely agree with you on that front because i think a lot of the um meaning of life that i derive myself is based on individualism and just you know mm being yourself and deriving all those characteristics from your own uh, motivation essentially um but at the exactly. same time um if you look at groups historically which have been marginalized um the the whole concept and idea of identity politics is rooted in the understanding that these people are asking for special treatment by virtue of their gender their race their class um, and this focus on protecting niche group interests at the same time, as you said, or I might come across as now, you know, increases the risk of excluding the wider collective public and essentially disuniting us for our commonalities, which, which are that mm. we are human beings. Um, but if I take the example for, of gay marriage, it came to the forefront of the last Conservative government and we you know, made it legal, but that does not necessarily undermine heterosexuality. So that was essentially a, an identity politics goal to achieve um, legalising gay marriage. Um, but at the same time, I agree with you that we need to be quite constructive within our identity politics and recognise when it's being used as a weapon to essentially marginalise other groups as well. Yeah, so I, I completely agree with um, the analysis that you've just put forward. I think absolutely I agree that different individuals can band together to advocate for shared interests and that would as you gave an example of would be gay marriage but i think the difference is now particularly with identity politics it doesn't seem to necessarily be a specific goal in terms of what is what we are focused on achieving with the um, whole lgbt rights activism there was a clear goal in terms of advocating for um, equal political rights similar with um previous generations in relation to advocating for equality under the law so now we actually do have um equality under the law now that doesn't mean that there doesn't we don't have racism and discrimination that still exists but at least at the very least we have a legal system that we can fall back on if we can prove that someone is discriminating against us in terms of the identity policies framework it, it there's not actually a specific focus to which we are um necessarily directing our attention to is only just emphasizing difference and I think that that's something that um, is Breakdown. a kind of negative um, development on it. Yeah that's that's really interesting and another critique um, against identity politics is something that really frustrates me is the um, use of quotas in mm. promoting diversity and inclusion in you know in, in higher echelons of organizations so 
primarily in boardrooms and you know CEOs and things like that. Um, so that is essentially, I, I see that as an identity politics move using quotas to address mm. the lack of diversity. I don't think quotas really deals with the root cause of the problem. I think it's essentially, <laughs> for want of a better analogy, just putting a, a plaster on, on a broken arm because yeah, publishing... Um. Stats, for example, in an annual report is a good scrutiny of a company's um, diversity or you know, inclusion statistics as opposed to just using quotas. You know, that's not really going to achieve why these structural issues are still at bay, why there, there is a lack of diversity. Um, and again, the, the principle of meritocracy comes to the fore here as well, you know, ensuring that people who actually deserve to get the, the top job actually get the top job as opposed to oh, just being another quota by virtue of their colour or, or, their, you know, or their gender. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think, um, as you alluded to, I think that quotas are often a very uh, faulty short term solution to what is essentially quite a complex problem. And I think it often lets organisations off from actually doing something genuinely meaningful, which is, yeah. as you alluded to, dealing with the kind of structural issues that are preventing certain um, groups of people from accessing um, those particular spaces. Just And a lot of the time, which is really unfortunate with quotas, is that they... Um, often lower the standards so they'll allow certain groups to have lower grades and I think that that's that's really not necessarily um, quite visionary thinking for example there's much better ways to do that so for example I'll just give really quickly um, in in Cambridge one of the um, colleges in Cambridge instead of saying that certain ethnic groups have um, should get a lower grade in order to get into the university what they're doing some colleges are ethnic minority only foundation years so that they can have extra training in order to when it gets to to the point where they're applying yeah to meet the grades eventually to get into uni exactly and I think that that's that is some of the methods that you can use which still in some senses help people specifically that are perhaps um, not getting the access but without necessarily changing the dynamic where people um are entered into a particular organization or group or institution with a lower standard I think that sends a really damaging message and I think that we we need to get to the structural reasons not just put a plaster on it like you said yeah yeah I think it is a very difficult quite a thorny area and people don't really have a set answer and different organizations work in different ways to address these issues but the most important thing is they are you know being recognized as being actual problems which need to be solved Mm -hmm. at least there's a positive to take from that um so this brings me on to my next question. Um, so you stood as the Brexit Party candidate for Leeds North East yeah. at the most recent <laughs> general election. Um, would you mind just telling us a bit more about that and, and why you believe um, in Brexit? So um, I think there are many, many different reasons why I believe in Brexit, um, and I'll give a few of them. The first one, I think, for me is the democratic reason. Um, I personally don't think democracy is just some random um, coincidence that we have within society. I actually think it's an incredibly remarkable system that we've collectively been able to achieve. It is completely contrary to the majority of the way in which human beings have organised politically, historically. Um, And in this system, we all, at least theoretically, have one vote and one opportunity as equals in a society to be able to um, decide the future of that country and elect representatives and so 
even in a society like Britain, which is relatively smaller um, in relation to population, it's already incredibly difficult to be able to find some kind of consensus and move forward and be able to deal with um, the complex issues that arise. And therefore, in order to, I think that exacerbating that problem by essentially converging dozens of other nations that are different in multiple different ways, economically, culturally, um, and politically into one organization where there isn't that um, push and pull factor where citizens are not the front and center of decision making where it's a very top-down organization I think is really problematic and it's not just problematic because I think um, I don't agree with it in terms of the way it functions democratically but also actually when we see when various crises do emerge, that form of organisation quite quickly starts to fracture. We saw that with, um, for example, the refugee crisis or like the mm. um, Greek Greek economic crisis. And we're already seeing that um, with the coronavirus crisis, that unfortunately the European Union has had absolutely no coherent response because when it really comes down to the crunch, we need our nations, we need our um, societies as individuals, as sovereign independent states, to be able to make those decisions and take decisive action. So democracy for me is a really big one in relation to my views on the European Union. That's really, um, that's, um, yeah, it's a really interesting response. And I think what tie, the undertones that I get from, from that uh, response from you is that it is not just about democracy, but what really ties in with that is bureaucracy. And a lot of people are frustrated or were frustrated with the European Union's, you know, really, really complex and unnecessary a lot of the time red tape around mm. a lot of their processes um, and just wanting to basically get on with things without having to have everything approved by you know 27 or 26 other member states so yeah that's a really interesting point um but also like so one reason is democracy but um i guess the other reason for me is it's also a means to an end for me leaving the european union um Mm -hmm. as much as i have criticisms of the eu i also think that there are many deep flaws um, within the British political system, within Westminster, and we've had many conversations about that in Britain collectively, whether that's um, the various scandals that happen, cash for questions, expensive scandals, the whole idea of a Westminster bubble. And I think that part of leaving the European Union for me was a process of actually democratisation in the UK, where actually power then becomes handed down even further in terms of like more local communities and people-led decision making and I think that that, yeah yeah, so so it was very much um more than just the EU for me it was it was about shifting the political culture of the UK as well and having the establishment have that wake-up call (laughs) yeah and dispersing democratic powers to local government is that the sort of idea you had well partly local government but um just just having um enabling an easier process for for uh, more for decentralization so yeah local government but also just um increasing democratic engagement and political engagement which i think brexit already did and started that process of having far more political engagement um, in what was going on yeah so as opposed to just a few people having all the say and um determination at the top just spreading mm. out the the democratic participation so that everyone has their say essentially yeah absolutely um, and as a woman of colour who voted for Brexit, were you, would you say that you were treated any differently by your um, white counterparts or to your other white counterparts who were um, also 
um, competing in the general election and also by any other women of colour. Yeah, so what I had really mentally prepared before I did that, before I decided to um, join the Brexit party, it was, I had to really mentally prepare because obviously um, the traditional perception of a Brexiteer is not usually someone that is embodied in in what looks like me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And so I I did have to mentally prepare, but what I would say is when I actually joined, I was unbelievably surprised. And and this is not a joke, like this is really serious. When I joined the party, this was probably one of the first experiences that I'd had in a long time because I just joined it straight out of university. And it was one of the first experiences I had in a long time where um, my people's interest in me wasn't defined by um my race and my gender it was very much like I, I do you support brexit are you willing to be part of this fight um are you passionate and it was an environment full of all different types of people and that really really shocked me and it really wow. yeah. helped so me to question like, yeah yeah so you feel like you're being tokenized or anything like that or that you were you know seen as an outsider for not you know representing the typical outlook or appearance of someone who um would vote for brexit yeah, no, I, I exactly that. It, I did not feel that I was tokenized in any way. And what the most unfortunate aspect of all of it was, was the people that were accusing me of essentially being a token mm. were, again, people that were um, as, um, of a different political stance to me. And oftentimes that was um, either middle-class white liberals or other people of colour. And I felt, again, <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so my individuality was again being not denied by the people that were traditionally framed as those that are against me but yeah. of the people that are are meant to be my natural allies and I thought that that was really unfortunate so that's what I really experienced that the most um, I've actually got a picture of it um on my website I don't know if you've seen it but I've actually got a picture that was um taken by um, a random photographer of a white man like an old white man in the middle of London at a pro-Brexit protest, shouting at me, calling me a race traitor. And this is really? not even funny. Yeah, it, is. <laughs> it is actually crazy. So he was telling me that I was a race traitor and he was actually white. And I just response, thought... Isn't it? That's the stock response you get. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I was thinking, like, is, uh, is this actually, like, am I in a twilight zone or something? <laughs> that is funny wow yeah i mean only in 2020 would you see this happen post-truth post-brexit post-trump life exactly Um, and and so yeah the overwhelming response that i got was positive i think that what i found when i was speaking to people um at the hustings and at the debates when i was standing is that i guess the fact of being a woman of color did spark people's interest so I think mm. it was actually it ended up being a route for, for me to actually have way more conversations about the complexities of the issue and, and why yeah. what drew, drew me into um supporting it and things like that so it was both um something that could be argued to be a difficulty or, or an obstacle but on the other hand it was also an opportunity to spark a whole load of conversations so that was really nice as well it worked out in your favor and yeah gathering from your comments I don't I don't recognize that you were um you had to prove yourself to feel like you were a part of the Brexit party you didn't feel the need to do that at all no um and I think I I I definitely didn't get any um sense like that I mean even if anything 
you know, I personally had that own feeling within myself of a bit of imposter syndrome just because I just left university. I was like, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) This is not exactly the typical thing to do out of university. Yeah. And, you know, as a woman of colour, I think it's very easy to, or, you know, you just expect that you're going to get a lot of backlash from people. Whereas if it was Mm. even a white woman who had these views, that she wouldn't be so scrutinised by her own community at all. So it's just a very interesting contrast to know, really. Um, no, exactly. And I actually looked at some of the Brexit Party's policies um, a few days ago. I was just, I was just very curious because I know the name itself, Brexit Party, anyone who voted Remain, including you know myself, I voted Remain. Looking mm. at the, the Brexit Party, you just think, oh my God, this is, um, you know, I'm, I'm never going to vote for them because by virtue of their name. But some of the policies seemed really progressive, actually. So I looked, I looked at it and it said um, no privatisation of the NHS, no interest on student loans, free broadband for deprived households abolishing um, the House of Laws as well. So some of those mm. policies are, are pretty progressive. And a lot of people would never expect, um, you know, the Brexit Party to have those sorts of policies. And that just reinforces my significance or the, the weight I place on really, you know, knowing your stuff when you research your political allegiances and what it is that you want to vote for um, before yeah. you just go and join the crowd in terms of what the historical representation of you know the traditional Labour versus Conservative divides are, I think is really important to scrutinise. I agree and I think um, one of the interesting and unique things about the Brexit Party is it's a coalition of people from across the political spectrum so I think it was more important for the Brexit Party to be able to find policy, policies that kind of cross those political lines and so that's why you actually do find a genuine diverse range of Um, policies from different sides of the political spectrum but also because I think that one of the developments that we've seen um, in the last 10 years is the way in which people's people's political opponents are not only characterized as people that think differently but they're often characterized as people that are evil or horrible or wrong and we see it with the really intense nature of um, political debate right now but actually if people took a step back in truth there are elements of truth in both sides of the political spectrum yes you know on the conservative side you know um we need to encourage entrepreneurship and individuality and people to work hard and be independent and sovereign but on top of that there's truth on the left-wing side that actually there are problems within society itself that are structured to keep people down and i think that both of those um viewpoints are parts of the truth and therefore they should be working together to find solutions that I guess meet both of those ways of thinking but unfortunately what we have now it's very binary very dichotomous and it's just that nuance gets eroded. Would you say that you can be a conservative and still be a feminist and as a woman of colour would you would you say that you believe in intersectional feminism? I mean I appreciate the concept itself can seem so far removed from the daily life. To answer your first question I mean I think that if we just look at feminism at at its most basic level and that is that people people who advocate for or anyone who essentially just supports um, equality for women um, equality under the law and I think that that is a starting point and there is different ways in which people believe that should be achieved there are different ways in which people believe 
we should go from that point in terms of shifting social attitudes or what is the best dynamic between men and women and therefore I absolutely believe that you can have conservative ways of thinking in that respect and just as much as you can have sex positive feminists or liberal feminists or radical feminists yeah I Um, agree I think anyone can be a feminist um and Again, it is very much about putting your own stamp on things. Um, mm. I mean, the, the concept was originated by, you know, academics. So Kimberly Crenshaw, an American academic, um, but mm. it's only quite recently entered mainstream conversation. And it wasn't even in the Oxford what, what, intersectional feminism? Yeah, intersectional feminism. The thing is about intersectional feminism. That's anything that I personally, um, I'm personally quite critical of. I think that what it, it, it argues is that, um, for example, feminism previously was too focused on white middle-class women and therefore it, it kind of um, didn't enable us to acknowledge and deal with the different ways in which people um, have different experiences based off of various different in, um, intersecting identities. Yeah. And the, pro- the problem that I have with that is, to me, I, I don't see that as some kind of radical new way of thinking i'm um, going back to what we were originally talking about in terms of being an individual mm. that that to me just sounds like how individuals experience different things differently i don't see well, yeah that, that is fundamentally what intersectionality is it's, it's about each pe- person having the right to express the experiences they've had and how it's shaped who they are um, and it's not just about, um, you know, it's just not a monolith of you know one brand of feminism it is about everyone has their own experience and, and I think that that's completely fine. But the problem that I guess I would say has developed from that is almost um, intersectional feminism, what I've seen, how it's developed in society has essentially become um, a hierarchy um, mm. of, of victimhood. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very much like if you are a white middle class um, wealthy woman, for example, you are, it, it often sounds like you are seen as morally um, inferior to someone else, someone that might be a black working class uh, woman, and I think that I find that to be a quite concerning dynamic, which seems to assign virtue and and goodness to people solely based off the level of victimhood or suffering. Exactly, and I think that that's quite yeah, problematic. It is, yeah, and I've got this um, this concept down um, in my notes as well, um, where you know people who are considered members of this victim group, um, by virtue of being members of that group, are then told, "Oh, your your suffering is a lot more prominent, and therefore your feminism is a lot more meaningful and needs to be." talked about a lot more than someone else's and fundamentally that actually detracts away from the whole concept of how I understand intersectional feminism because it Mm. is about it's not an inversion of power play and who who needs to be at the top of the hierarchy or who needs to feel more morally superior but I think ultimately it's about leveling the playing field and um, should be used as a tool to address these historical power imbalances but yeah as you said it that a lot of people see as the victimhood mentality and they don't want to be portrayed in that way because they want to be empowered um yeah so that's, that's an interesting dynamic there yeah so I think as I said if if it is um at the basic level in theory an attempt to um, increase equality of opportunity then I would support it but unfortunately um, the way in which it has manifested itself in the kind of activist class does seem to have veered into an attempt to um, assign 
as you said, and as I've said, um, victimhood or even an oppressor versus oppressed dynamic just by virtue of your characteristic. And, and the problem that I have, as I said, is that, and this is one of the things that I spoke about in the big questions um, when we first met, was that I, we were talking about, um, are we fading white working class boys? And, yeah. and the people that were arguing against me seemed to think that just by virtue of them being white, um, the reality of the way in which they are structurally disadvantaged based off of their class doesn't matter and yeah. I think that that's that is completely contradictory to the ways that I think I think regardless of what your characteristics oh. are if you are facing systemic um oppression or systemic discrimination then that then that's important and yeah. the fact that you are white or black or male or a female should not um hamper people's sympathy for you yeah I think that yeah there are several different layers there you've got, you've got economic participation political and cultural as well and exactly. people aren't going to dispute the fact that yes historically white people have been um, advantaged um they've had a lot of power but um in in the same you know in the same narrative there's also this double standard that people keep talking about which is that you know white people talking about you know mass immigration and talking about not being able to or you know not wanting a rapid change of their way of life is branded as racist, um, but when minority groups want to express these interests and say that, oh, we want our cultural um, preferences to be recognised, then that, that's okay. But when white people say, oh, we want to protect our our culture, our heritage, and we don't want assimilation to take place at, at the rapid pace that it is at the moment, because we're worried that you know what we've known our whole lives is going to be taken over. So that's a really interesting um dynamic there as well because there is a double standard and um yeah people yeah. people just pull the race card on it a lot yeah and i think i do understand as you already alluded to the reason why that double standard is there due to the historical reality of um institutionalized racism but i think that at some point we have to recognize and acknowledge the way in which society has changed and be able yeah. to um think about and, and empathize to people's experiences as individuals today not always in light of various things that they may or may not have had any responsibility for yeah and there's a big you know push for collective responsibility so whenever like mm. you know someone a white person's been racist against um a person of color like the entire white population is attacked for it or, or reprimanded and told you know you should be doing something about this when it was all along just an individual act of mm. you know just hatred so yeah and no, i agree yeah and going on from that, I mean, freedom of speech um, is a very important and significant um, aspect in your life. Um, and you speak yeah. quite a lot in your like television appearances and things like that. And would you say um, that it's compatible with truth and lasting peace? Well, well yeah, that, that's a pretty complex question. There's yeah. multiple things I can say towards <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> the first thing that I would say is that I actually think that freedom of speech is almost um, inextricably linked to the pursuit of truth and I think that um, freedom of speech as I understand it is not necessarily just an ask, uh, a right for someone to say whatever they want mm. um, freedom of speech to me is much deeper than that it's the implicit recognition that us as individuals do not have the whole truth actually us as individuals have part of the truth for our own unique experiences and perspectives but other people have 
other unique experiences and perspectives and what is the what is the mechanism that we can use in order to um, extract the bits of truth by, from all of us and create some kind of meaningful narrative about the world and that mechanism to me is free speech that's by me expressing my ideas um, you listening contrasting it and, and challenging me and we're in this kind of push and pull dynamic in order to, to kind of create a space where new thoughts and new ideas can emerge and free speech is it's really unfortunate that free speech has kind of been framed um, in recent years as something that's somehow in opposition to progressive politics because in reality when I look at um, historical civil rights movements free speech has been one of the most important tools that they've used to challenge the structures that um, were subjugating them in reality the orthodoxies in the 60s didn't want black people gay people or women to speak they wanted to silence them and shut them down yeah. but free speech was the, the mechanism they used to actually express their ideas, convince other people and push society forward. And so I think it's both compatible with truth in a really deep and meaningful way, but is, is essential to peace because yeah. we now live in a multicultural society. We don't live in a homogenous society. And the only way that we can mitigate difference and, um, and, um, and contend with, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, accept and contend with the multitude of ways in which we look different and, and think differently is by being able to talk to each other in a free and open environment and yeah. so free speech to me is both essential to truth and essential to lasting peace yeah that's um, a very um, potent response and <laughs> not without its controversies either um, but yeah a lot of people do nowadays see freedom of speech as you said as um, essentially a cover to spout hate against other people they don't like or ideas that they don't like um, and, and that is okay to an extent it's okay to say you don't like someone or you don't like a certain politician you don't like Jeremy Corbyn you don't like Nigel Farage or whatever whoever it is that you may not like um, and that's okay because you're ex exercising your right to free speech or expressing an opinion um, mm. but when people are um, harmed by being vilified or collected collectively being mobbed um, a lot of the time we see a lot of online abuse as well um, freedom of speech you can see how it can very easily cause a lot of disruption and disrupt peace essentially um, especially yeah. when people are challenging someone else's opinion um, if if the opinion is put forward as an actual fact um, or strongly portrayed um, in a narrative that suggests that it is um, the truth essentially um, and yeah. we're a lot of um, cancel culture and no platforming um recently amber rudd was um, no platformed at an event in oxford university um on the day that she was meant to come and, and give the talks and and that was quite um quite shocking really i mean i was I, I don't necessarily agree with what amber rudd has done in during her time in politics but the fact that she was disrespected to that level was was pretty shocking and it just um illustrates how our society is so impatient um in terms of tolerating others other mm. views um, that are contrary to their own um yeah i mean well this is what this is um again why why i fundamentally believe that free speech is essential to lasting peace because not just i completely acknowledge that certain types of speech can be painful and, and make you uncomfortable and, and really difficult but i guess my response to that would be then is shutting down speech the solution because what we actually have no, found I don't think it should be no i think that's exactly a extreme, extreme response to that i think there's there's definitely ways to balance 
um, balancing it, things. Exactly, because actually what we find is that shutting down speech only makes things even less peaceful. As you just gave the example of the Amber Rudd situation, I never in my entire life thought that I would be in a position where I was defending Amber Rudd. But actually that's what ended up happening, where I, had, I ended up having sympathy for her because yeah. she was, as you said, disrespected in such a um, nasty um, way. And so actually what we find is that if we accept that... Um, certain speech is horrible or hateful and therefore we should censor it, then all we are doing is empowering those individuals that are genuinely deeply authoritarian in their mechanisms. I mean, to just no platform somebody without um, any recourse to kind of censor someone to exclude them from public debate, that just simply doesn't work. And so I think that the best response when we have difficult speech and disagreeable speech that makes us deeply uncomfortable is to genuinely um, challenge those views, engage with them. I mean, that, the situation with Amber Rudd would have been a perfect opportunity to hold a politician to account, to yes, ask her really is. difficult questions, to make sure that she, yes. she is really, um, her, her feet are held to the fire. Instead, it's a very lazy way, in my view, of actually um, dealing with difficult um, ideas to just, to just silence them. challenging them. If you're just shutting them completely, there's no point because there's no debate and scrutiny. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but I mean, if we look at the current um, pandemic with COVID-19, mm. we're seeing a lot of media sensationalism, a lot of journalists uh, and public figures trying to garner our attention with, you know, very punchy and clickbaity titles about the pandemic and really playing on a lot of our fears, especially a lot of people um, I'm seeing having um, a lot of health anxieties at this very strange time. But a lot of the time, it's not just, you know, they're not informing the public with facts. A lot of the time they're scaremongering or a lot of the time even misinformation is being disseminated to the point where, you know, information is being distorted. The truth is being distorted. Um, how do we, you know, balance uh, strike a balance between freedom of speech and this level of media sensationalism and is there a way would you say to shift the narrative so that we can legitimize scrutiny and hold out account where it's necessary but without scaremongering mm. or fueling hate speech through the mechanism mm. or under the guise of freedom of speech um so i think there's multiple things that can be done in that respect um i i really do believe um as I guess a thread has been forming in relation to my views about politics and Brexit and intersectionality. Um, I really do believe that us as individuals do have the power. And actually, this is not just a belief in the abstract. I do see that practically um, mm. in, in regards to the way in which the internet has now become an incredible tool for people. And it's a double edge. It's got one side that's really positive, but there's obviously other sides of the internet that are um, kind of dark. But one of the incredible things about the internet is that you have... Um, unbounded access to the information at your fingertips and there's multiple ways that you can respond to that now I would genuinely recommend people um, start to learn and be able to use their sense of discernment and decipher between um, what is quite clearly sensationalized ridiculous inflammatory ideas which is generally quite obvious and mm. start to um, direct our attention and resources um, to forms of media, forms of information sharing that is genuinely balanced, um, full of analysis, genuinely um, interesting and multifaceted. And I do think that that stuff is there. Like I don't read um, newspapers that are constantly telling me um, 
to vilify this group or to be angry at this. I do take the time to actually um, look at a range of different media sources and journalistic information and listen to podcasts and listen to information. I do think that it's, mm. it's really down to us because it's very much a symbi- symbiotic relationship. Yes, these, these sources of information, um, such as various media that are quite inflammatory, um, play up our fears, but also... Um, many on many occasions we react and become part of that because it feeds into it feeds into our fears and then we react and then that kind of the 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 media organizations and amplify it further and it becomes this never-ending cycle and i think the way to break that is by us taking it into our own hands because that's literally works there's been media like news of the world um the canary there's been various different media organizations that have genuinely collapsed because they've had no readership anymore and so i think that um i think that one we we can we can use our common sense really to know that actually this is a bit ridiculous and over the top but now we've got information so democratized we can actually look at other ways of reporting and see that actually this one is ridiculous and we should just stop um stop feeding into um that that black hole yeah so i understand that you're saying essentially we need to take ownership of what content we choose to look at and because of how widely um, accessible all the information is on the internet nowadays um, Mm. it's up to us what we do with it but having said that there are issues with you know I can tell you someone as someone who regulates the media there are people Mm. who genuinely look at things and take them at face value without having an inkling of wanting to critique it or to challenge it in any way and that's when in the dissemination of information can cause some serious harm to a lot of people who are especially quite vulnerable um but nonetheless as you've said i do agree that you know but i guess yeah i i do sorry go on I was going to say, you know, as you said, restrictions on freedom of speech is not the appropriate way to deal with these sorts of issues. Um, we've got things like laws on defamation, we've got um, public orders, um, we've mm. got regulation, a lot of the media is self-regulatory now. So press councils, for example, also serve to encourage journalists to publish you know, accurate information. So we do have that as a backup. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There were already a lot of regulations and laws in place, as you've just said, to regulate the media. So it's not necessarily that we have just entered into this kind of wild west where anyone can say what they want. In reality, there's already quite a strong foundation and framework um, to be able to uh, challenge these organisations if they are going way off of what is morally acceptable, really. Yeah. Ultimately, I think. I think the wider question here is, and I don't reckon we're going to have an answer for this, but, you know, does free speech undermine or can it undermine our sense of public responsibility? And I do think it can when it's you know, weaponized and used to manipulate information, um, especially mm. at this dangerous time where people are believing, holding on to any hope they can um, in the midst of a, a global pandemic that we've never seen anything like before. Well, what I will say is that there's two things I'll say. One is that I think um, part of, in fact, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. I think part of the problem is much deeper than um, 
I guess, free speech being weaponized. I actually think that for a long time over the past few decades, we've had such a breakdown in trust yes. in which when these situations do emerge, it's much difficult for us to deal with. So for example, if you look at countries like Korea or, or Japan or Sweden, they still have the same information infrastructure that we do, but actually there's a high level of public trust, a high level of faith in the institutions. And so for in, in our country, we've seen various different scandals, various different um, behaviours by the government and institutions, which has genuinely eroded people's trust. And so when something like a pandemic comes about, people don't really know what to believe. And then in that climate, that can be weaponised. And so I think the solution to that is not is not necessarily to curb free speech, as I've mentioned. I think the solution to that is that we, as a civil society, need to fundamentally be working on rebuilding public trust in our institutions and having way more accountability with regards to um, our political system, um, even the police, the way most of the police have behaved um, has been a bit overhanded in, in this coronavirus incident. And so there's different things that have actually emerged that have um, challenge public trust which means that that can quite easily be exploited by people that have quite nefarious means and so that's some of the work that i'm now attempting to do particularly post coronavirus is um, as i alluded to in relation to the brexit um, conversation is that significantly raising public education um, and awareness of, of civil society, of politics, of citizenship, of our responsibilities. So when these crises emerge in a, from a citizenship and civil society perspective, we are able to deal with them and not just dealing with it in this really fractured disinformation um, pool that we have right now. I understand from your comments here that you're saying that, you know, it's not about blanket banning free speech to, to deal with this wider issue here. It's more about essentially the redistribution of power so that, you know, power isn't utilised um, overhandedly, as you said, by the police. Governments are held to account for their mm. policies and their actions so that we can redress this whole distrust um, by the public of institutions, of governments, of mm. you know, news media outlets and things like that. Um, but the one thing I, have, I can say is that from my personal experience, the one source that I've looked at, and I never really go on the BBC News website, and I never, I didn't really go on it prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, but that is where I go now to look at actual news as opposed to just going on, you know, The Guardian or The Independent, because I know that the BBC is going to have the ability to look at both sides of the coin. Mm. So, and, and, and again, you know, people don't really trust the BBC. People, a lot of people think it's pro-conservative. A lot of people say it's pro-socialism. You know, it's, <laughs> where, do you really go? where do you draw the line here? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a thing, another thing that I'll, another point I'll make. I think um, what we kind of forget is that in, in truth, the internet and social media is still relatively new. I mean, when we look at just human history, but even just post, post industrialization history, we've really only had the internet and social media for like 10, 20 years maximum. And so I think we're genuinely still figuring it out. I think that this is a process that, um, is probably going to take a bit longer, but we're still figuring out what is acceptable. You know, a couple of years ago, council culture and all of this was such a big thing, and I think it still is. But I think now people are starting to think, oh, wait, actually, I don't think that that's the appropriate way to respond to people that have said something dodgy 15 years ago. I think we need to think of new rules and new mechanisms. So I think we're still feeling it out and we are still getting things wrong. But I think when we put things into perspective, I think that... Um, it's still relatively new in terms of how we're engaging with people in this digital age. And so 
there's a lot more to be done in relation to just figuring out what the rules are. So we have to give each other some credit. <laughs> yeah, we should. Yeah, I mean, we are still learning. But I, I do think I'm going to be I'm going to sound really cynical here. But I do think mm. the human memory is, is pretty short term. And we quickly forget um, the, the lessons that we should really be learning. If you look at what happened recently with Caroline Flack, um, you know, mm. committing suicide and people were, you know, pretty sympathetic for a good couple of weeks. And then after that, it's back to back to standard sensationalism and battering. Um, yeah, no, so that that is a good point. And even in this coronavirus situation that I've been as I've talked about in the podcast, I'm very much like, I have a lot of faith in people and democracy, yeah. but it's even very much challenged my views to see um, the whole idea of kind of snitching on your uh, neighbour if they take a second <laughs> run. Like for me, I've, I've thought, surely this is just like, am I just, what the hell? Like I just oh, thought. It's full blown police day, honestly, what's happening? <laughs> exactly. And I'm thinking, this is completely absurd and I can't believe that people would actually think that that was an appropriate way to behave. And so it's challenged even my thinking in terms of how much faith I put in people to act responsibly. Um, And so, yeah, I think this is just, this is going to be an ongoing conversation. But the main, the main thing is that I think that we as individuals absolutely need to be more active in, in shaping it because if we don't, then it ends up just being shaped by people that um are far more determined and far more organized to shape it in their own image and so we really have to be part of that process yeah absolutely so i guess to round up this conversation um exploring the wider theme of, of the current pandemic you know we've seen quite a few calls for partisan politics in the midst of this pandemic to be set aside but regardless of those views um i think a lot of the hot-headed and passionate um, individuals have really taken this opportunity to bolster their own identity politics um we've seen that between you know remainers and brexiteers between laborites and conservatives as well how important would you say it is to set aside identity politics and form a united front during covid19 um i would say that i think it's important to set aside identity politics but i'm not sure about the whole the united front thing so with regards to identity politics i think um we are as we've been talking about in the midst of a major pandemic we're in huge uncharted territory and actually the focus on identity in my opinion over the last 10 years has actually meant that we have almost stagnated intellectually where we are just not even we're not challenging anything yeah yeah we're not even prepared to to face some of the genuinely complex questions that have emerged i mean there's questions of you know education family um the economy uh surveillance capitalism these are really complex questions that we need to be um, at a position to be able to talk about and so if we're talking about identity then we are going to hugely hugely miss the mark on that one um, i agree with you yeah and with regards to the united front i think yes the problem that i have is that what i've seen is an expectation in this time for ideological conformity and i do think we still do not know a lot about the virus now exactly and and yes it's kind of it's being led by the medical experts and stuff but there are still many many different questions and i think actually in this in the time of a pandemic um dissent and questioning is probably even more important than ever it's very easy to kind of uh support being a rebel when everything's calm and cool but actually in this time and we're having decisions being made that can 
fundamentally transform the way in which we live our lives. We, we've seen that the, the biggest loss of civil liberties since um, in, in peacetime history, these are things that people need to be making sure that they're aware of. And so I think unity is okay, but not unity um, in, in a way that it replaces us being critical and critically thinking about what's going on. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think the idea of being non-partisan at this stage actually quashes the opportunity for us to hold our leaders accountable. Keir Starmer has asked for the opposite, uh, the government to publish plans to, um, for when the lockdown is going to come to an end and I think that's really important and without an opposition we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have that level of critique um, and, and holding our you know our elected leaders um, to account so I think that that is really really uh, a fundamental point given the current context that we are living in. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say un unprecedented times because I think that's now been overused so yeah. <laughs> I would agree with <laughs> um, I usually ask my um, guests to quote, uh, extract a quote from a book that they've recently read, which really explains how they relate to it, or any other theme that they can strongly relate to. So, I mean, if you do have anything, do let me know. I do. It's, it's quite long, though. It's not, not too long, but it's a bit long. Okay, do you want me to read it? <laughs> Go on, yeah. Okay. So this is a quote from Roger Scruton, um, a unfortunately recently um, passed away conservative philosopher, British conservative philosopher. And in his book, How to Be a Conservative, which I recently read, he said, conservatism starts from the sentiment that all mature people can readily share, the sentiment that good things are easily destroyed, but not easily created. This is especially true of the good things that come to us as collective assets, such as peace, freedom, law, public spirit, the security of property, family life, in all of which we depend on the cooperation of others whilst having no means of single-handedly obtaining it. It's almost finished. Wow, <laughs> um, not very long at all. Um, in respect of such things, the work of destruction is quick, easy and exhilarating. The work of creation, slow, laborious and dull. That is one of the lessons of the 20th century. It is also one reason why conservatives suffer from a disadvantage when it comes to public opinion. Their position is true, but boring. Um, that of their opponents is exciting, but false. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of um, the quote, I think it was by Winston Churchill. He said, if you're not a socialist um, when you're in your 20s, then you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 40, then you have no brain. So, um, yes, exactly. Reminds me of that. So, yeah, really yeah. interesting quote, actually. Yeah, I think that's actually quite, it's quite similar to that Winston Churchill one, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, good. Yeah, I feel like, oh my God, I'm maturing with my, as I'm maturing by age, my politics is also maturing. Um, yeah. all, you become your parents and I feel like, oh God, I don't want to get into that territory. <laughs> well, I mean, as you get older, you end up having way more responsibilities that you didn't have when you were younger. And so the responsibilities you now have, you're, you start to think, well, what are the interests of not just me but the interests of the different things that and people that depend on me and I yeah. think that that is then when it kind of starts to you start to think a bit differently yeah um yeah <laughs> well on that note thank you very much and I for coming on to today's show via zoom it was absolutely wonderful talking to you I genuinely enjoyed this conversation I feel like we could go on for longer but yeah, we could without recording <laughs> thanks very much I hope you enjoyed chatting to me I did it was really really fun and thank you to the listeners until next time bye bye 
Thank you for listening to Brown Don't Frown podcast. If today's discussion interested you or you want to share your story, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Brown Don't Frown podcast and on Twitter at BDF podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyasweeklydose.com. Join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Frown podcast. Please like, share and subscribe. Thank you.